You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Thanks for joining me on Her Money. Over the last few weeks, we have heard from so many, I mean so many of you who have questions about how to navigate the realities of a volatile market. And while there is no such thing as a recession-proof financial plan, we can find ways to prepare no matter what's happening in the market. And speaking of those markets, at the time of this recording, the S&P 500 is down more than 20% since the beginning of the year. The Fed has already raised interest rates three times, and it looks like they'll do so again quite soon in an effort to tamp down inflation that, at last count, stood at 8.6%, the highest level since 1981. The R word, yes, recession, is also on many economists' lips, and we know it's a worry for many of you, which is why we wanted to get together and take some of your most pressing questions. We're going to talk through all of them with Isabel Barrow. Isabel is a chartered retirement planning counselor with Edelman Financial Engines. She's also a featured planner host on the Everyday Wealth Show that I co-host with Soledad O'Brien. And Isabel is She's not just amazing. She has over 20 years of experience as a financial planner. She's got particular knowledge in high net worth strategies, in military and federal retirement benefits, in tax and estate planning, retirement planning, investment strategy, insurance planning. I could go on, but I won't. I'll just say, Isabel, thanks so much for doing this with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Tell us all a little bit about you. I mean, I've had the pleasure to get to know you a bit through our Everyday Wealth recordings and tapings. We've spent time together in person, but my listeners don't know you yet. I want them to know you better. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, like you said, my day job for the last 20 years has been as a financial planner, but my real full-time job is I'm mom to Henry, who's 10, and Catherine, who's 6. So a very busy household and also dog mom to Fred, uh, my two-year-old Bernadoodle, who's definitely the most important person in our household, according (laughs) to him. I have been living in Washington, D.C. for basically my entire life, and I love it here. And I'm wife to Ed, who I have been with for almost 27 years. Oh, that's amazing. What is it with us and our old man dog names? You don't know. See, now my son named Fred, so I don't really know where he came up with that name, but it definitely fits. It's just, it's absolutely perfect for him. He looks like an old man. It's a great dog name. He and Norman, if they ever meet, can absolutely be friends. And I just think it's a trend because my son and his girlfriend have a Carl and a Lloyd. So (laughs) So cute. What are you to turn to the topic of the day? What are you hearing from investors right now? I know you're on the phone with clients all the time. 
I am. And I think I, I'm getting really two very common questions. The first of which is, do I need to do something differently now with what's going on in the world and with the risk of a potential recession and all of this inflation and just the market volatility? What does it mean for me? And another one is the all too common, what do I do about cash? You know, I think that people are worried about what do I do with cash? Do I need to change the plans that I've laid out because of what's going on? So, you know, there's a lot of things I think going through our minds. It's a, a lot of emotional stuff, but those are probably two of the more common questions that I'm hearing. And I think all of us, you know, are thinking those same things all the time. Well, we've got questions from our listeners and we are going to be talking about both of those topics, but You've been through recessions before. You've been doing this for long enough, like I have, that you've seen all sorts of different market environments and economic environments. And and when you hear talk of a recession, you know, what comes to mind for you as it relates to real people's financial plans? Well, I think that Probably the most important thing that I can do for my clients during periods of time or, or a recessionary environment or periods of time where we're worried about a recession or in it is to think about the emotional consequences of that and how can I help them to really take the emotional part of it and remove that from their decision-making process. And so a lot of that is just kind of breaking down the, okay, you're stressed, you're losing sleep potentially. You know, you don't know what's going on, you have a lot of questions, but let's just boil this down to what does it actually mean to you and your circumstances, your situation for your family, and how can we then adjust? Do we need to adjust? Because I think for many people, they feel like they have to do something to make them feel better. It's, you know, I've got to take action, I have to do something, I've got to solve this problem. And it's not oftentimes a problem that needs to be solved. In many cases, it's just something that we need to get through. It's kind of the grin and bear it. And so, again, I think of myself to a certain degree in periods of time like this as a therapist. Like, okay, let's just talk about it. Let's talk about how you feel. Let's talk about what is really going on. And then let's figure out how we can apply actual process and actual thought to changes that we need to make and, and if we do need to make them and, and why. It's not the economy that we have to fix, right? I mean, as you were talking, it occurs to me, we can't fix the economy. As individuals, we have no power over interest rates or inflation or the markets, but you focus in and what you're helping your clients do and you're going to help us to do today is just focus in on that personal economy of yours, the things that you actually can control. One of which is your cash position. So let's turn to this question, our first question. It comes in from Chrissy. And Chrissy says, I've got a question about keeping my money in cash during inflationary times. I've previously had a six-month emergency fund on hand, and I've always liked the feeling of having cash on hand for whatever life throws at me. But increasingly, I've begun to feel like I'm losing money with inflation at 9%. I want to be ready for emergencies, but I also don't want to be naive. Lately, I've been wondering if more of my money should be in the market or if I should consider a real estate investment of some sort. What's the rule of thumb for keeping cash on hand during inflation? I got to say, I've been wondering the same thing because with cash, I mean, we're losing purchasing power, I know, year after year, but these days it feels like day after day. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a really hard question because you're right. On one hand, if you leave the money in cash, you are sort of locking in a loss because you know that that cash isn't growing. The banks aren't paying you what inflation is. And I haven't really noticed that banks have increased what you're getting on your savings by very much. I mean, maybe you can get one or 2% in a money market somewhere, but you've got to shop around. So it's a really tough one because I don't think that Chrissy's going to like the answer <laughs> because my answer is, we cannot time this. We cannot try to time the market. We cannot try to change our strategy because of what's going on because of inflation. Because I think that if you look at the bigger picture here, inflation is happening and that is also driving the risk of the Fed continuing to increase rates at a much faster clip and then the potential of a recession. And what happens in recessions is that oftentimes our jobs are less secure, our pay is less secure. You know, during inflationary times, your expenses might be higher in the future than they are right now, right? That's kind of what inflation means. So the problem is, is if we say, well, I want to try to take this cash and do something better with it, that might be the absolute worst time to do it because, you know, we may be in a period of time in the near future where you're going to need that cash for emergencies. So rule of thumb, in general, is three months to 24 months of your monthly expenses, right, in cash reserve. And that doesn't change because of inflation. It, it doesn't mean that we are going to reduce that because of the inflationary environment. Now, what? Well, that's exactly where I was going to go. Like, who's a three-monther and who's a 24-monther? I mean, I've always felt like there is a difference between one-income families and two-income families. You know, if you're a one-income family, you need a bigger cushion because if that one job goes, you don't have another job, right? But even beyond that, who's the outside player here who needs that 24 months? The 24-monthers are those who, I would say, fall into two different categories, one of which is people that are very close to retirement. You know, if you're very close to retirement— and we are potentially in an environment in the next couple of years where you're retired and the market is down. And by the way, that's not even based on where we are right now. I mean, if you're a retiree at 65, you're going to live for another 40 years or something or longer, you know, if you're lucky. And during that period of time, there are going to be other recessions. You know, there are going to be other down markets. So the reason for having that cash as a pre-retiree or retiree are multifaceted, but one of them, one of the main reasons that I like to keep that 24 months in cash for a retiree is if your portfolio is down and you're drawing money out of it every single month to live off of, you may want to have the flexibility to talk with your advisor during a bear market and say, hey, listen, I don't, maybe now is not a great time to keep pulling this monthly withdrawal out of my portfolio. Would it be better for my long-term returns, my long-term income preservation, if I instead tapped in some cash, right? If instead I used my cash reserve to live on for three or six months in order to get me through, right? And then you can go back and when the market has recovered or things have calmed down, then you can tap back into your portfolio and maybe now you only have 18 months of cash left and that's okay, you know? But that 24 months is really meant to kind of buffer you for income and for emergencies. You know, Jean, I cannot tell, and I'm sure you've heard this one before, but I can't tell you how many times somebody in their 70s or 80s comes to me and says, I have to get hearing aids and they're $10,000 or I have to have major dental work and I wasn't expecting it and it might be $15,000. I mean, these numbers are astronomical. So my concern with getting really slim in our cash reserves 
is that you never know when you're going to need it. That's the whole point of it. And circumstances are certainly different. So those are the 24-month. There's somebody who might be closer to the three-month threshold for cash reserve, two incomes, very secure jobs. If you work for the government, for example, you know, your job is unlikely to have a reduction in pay or, or major layoffs. And if you're younger, you don't have a whole lot of expenses as they relate to your income, then maybe you can go closer to three months of cash reserve. So I think depending on Chrissy's situation as it pertains to her question, it depends on how secure your income is. What are your total expenses as they relate to your income? Can you bear some reduction in income if that does happen in your future without having to dip into your emergency fund? And what's your whole household situation? So it is very much dependent on, I think, your own personal economy, as I'll, I'll use one of your Gene Chatsky terms. It's so funny that you bring up the dental work because I just wrote a column for AARP on that exact situation. And the guy needed not just dental work, but dental work and a new fence. Oh. And it seems to be there are these expenses that happen that are not quote unquote, emergencies. They're just not everyday expenses. And one of the suggestions was that, you know, maybe we actually have a fund for those two, those every so often things that just come up that are more than you thought they should be, but they happen every year. They're just never the same. That's right. And and they're also, obviously, because of Murphy's Law, probably going to happen when it's least opportune for you to take it from somewhere else. Right. You know, you don't want to have to sell it of your IRA and then pay extra taxes in order to pay for your new fence and dental work, especially if the market's down. So that emergency fund then, again, it doesn't have to be because it's a car wreck or, you know, a huge medical emergency. It is just for things that are the out of the ordinary. I mean, I have a travel fund. You know, I have a household fund. I don't see any problem with having your savings split up into different little buckets so you can control that and you can understand here's what I'm going to use this money for and this savings for and this savings for, but you still have to have it. You can't let sort of the emotional consequence of what's going on in the environment with inflation right now and, and all of that drive different behavior that then, you know, isn't going to fit with your longer term strategy and all of the things that you may need. So, and maybe it's part of our job as financial planners, but I feel like I have to look at like, what's the worst case scenario here? I have to be a little bit pessimistic and say, well, when you need this money because of the dental work and the fence and the, you know, whatever else it is, I'm always looking at the what ifs because- I think it is your job. I mean, that is part of your job, right? That's why I pay you. I mean, I don't pay you personally, but that's why I pay my advisor because personally, i don't necessarily want to look at these things every day, but I want to know that somebody is looking at these things every day. And that's why this is such an important relationship. Let's take another one. This one comes from Brittany and Brittany writes, is there something different you should be doing with college savings during a recession or during inflation? My daughter's 12. Her 529 balance has only dropped this year. And it's making me nervous that it's not going to grow at the rate we'd expected. I know a lot of people are looking at their accounts right now and feeling stressed out, but I was wondering if there's something different I should be doing with this money specifically since I will need it in around six years time. Thank you. 
Well, I think one of the things that I would like to know to answer this question really thoroughly is what rate were you expecting, Brittany? You know, what was the assumptions that you had made when you started saving into this account? What were the return assumptions that you'd made? Because if you were, for example, using a 15% long-term rate of return, you know, you might be a little short. <laughs> you might have to think about revisiting how much you're saving or how much you're going to be able to afford in terms of college. But if you were using sort of an appropriate long-term average, and if you're in a well-diversified portfolio here in the 529, six years is still a pretty good amount of time until you, your daughter gets to school. So, you know, you have to think about where is the market today versus where is it going to be in six years? So if you think it's going to be higher in six years, you stay the course, you continue investing in the same way, and you stick to your plan. Again, assuming that you've been using the right numbers in your planning. I think what some people tend to do with 529s is keep them really aggressively invested until their children are 18 and then make a change or until their children are college age or college ready. Maybe it's 19 or 20 or however old. And in reality, you kind of have to think about that age at which they're going to go to college in the same way that you think about your retirement target. You know, you've got to start slowly getting yourself to the point where that money is becoming more and more and more liquid to you by the time you're going to need it. Because, you know, if you're in an all-stock portfolio going all the way up to 18 and then you're going to cash it out over four years, you know, you haven't really appropriately taken into account market volatility and the risk of it being down. So you can't afford a recovery if you, you know, it's the bear market starts in the freshman year of college. You know, that could be a little bit tricky if you're too aggressively invested. So it goes back to thinking about that time frame and your asset allocation and, and how the portfolio is put together, all sort of related to how many years you have until your child's going to need it, and then how many years you're going to be using it for. So is it four years? Are you going to be using it for eight years? You know, what is the what is the whole time frame that you're thinking of? But again, most likely, it, you, you're, going to, you're going to keep doing what you've always been doing. Six years is a relatively long time as it relates to kind of markets and ups and downs in the markets. But again, I think it depends on what numbers you're using. Yeah. What do you think is a realistic return for the average portfolio year in and year out? I mean, when you're modeling, for example, Isabel, and I'm sure, look, I'm going to talk about Edelman Financial Engines in just a second. And I know it's based on Nobel Prize winning research, and you've got models coming out of your ears, right? You guys with your financial engines component were the very first robo-advisor. And the models that that company was built on are legendary. But for the person who takes a number and plugs it into a retirement calculator or a college calculator, what do you think is a decent number to use? Well, I think to your point, there are so many different portfolios. There is from all bond to all stock and everywhere in between. There are tax efficient portfolios. There are regular, you know, retirement account type portfolios, and they're all going to have a different projected rate of return. So in our software, in our financial planning software that we use, the rate of return that we assume for our clients is actually kind of custom to what their portfolio is comprised of, right? So it's not just a, hey, let's use 5% for somebody that's in a 60-40 portfolio. We're actually going to look at, all right, based on the breakdown of your portfolio and based on historic average averages rather of all of the different asset classes that you have, 
we're going to then make a projection and we're going to then say, okay, but in that projection, let's just say hypothetically, we've used a number of after fees, a rate of 7%. We're then going to show you very poor performance, which might only be, let's say, 3%. And then we're going to show you very poor, poor average, and then some other things, you know, the higher than average. But you're not going to use those. That's not what we use for a financial planning process. We don't ever assume better than average. But in general, to answer your question, I think barring working with a financial planning and having access to all of that software, if you have 10 or 15 years or more until retirement and you're in an aggressive or moderately aggressive portfolio, meaning 70% or higher in stock, I think you should probably be targeting 6 to 8% net of fees in a long-term portfolio on average annually. Now, that said, you might never actually see a 6, 7, or an 8. You might see a 10 or a 12 and then a negative 3. And so we're really talking about, you know, average over the long term, even though you may never see any of those actual return numbers. Now, if you're closer to retirement, or in this case, for Brittany, it's closer to college, you know, of when her child's going to need this money, you're looking at using an, or you should be, in my opinion, using a, a lower number than that. You probably want to be closer to 4 or 5% net of fees and what you're assuming going forward in thinking about, you know, what your, again, your long-term average rate of return would be. So in the case of a 529, when your child is zero and one, and you're looking at 18 years, your rate of return might be higher in those first five or 10 years or your projection, and then lower in the next five or 10 years, because you're becoming, or you should be, becoming more and more conservative as you get closer to that target. I totally understand what you're saying, Isabel. And I think it's why I get very frustrated when I hear people saying, oh, well, you can plug 10 or 12 or 15% into a retirement calculator after you've had particularly good years in the stock market. People get too optimistic and they undersave as a result. But what you're talking about is what our partner Edelman Financial Engines does. They tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you are building and growing and protecting. And their investment management approach, as I said, it's based on Nobel Prize winning research. Their planners do not sell products to earn commissions, period. That's really important. And so no matter where you're going next, I think you should see how they can help you get there. I'm talking with Isabel Barrow. We are taking all of your questions on navigating your financial plan during a recession. The next one, Isabel, comes from Rachel, and she writes, I've done some research, and by that I mean Googling, on the best investments for inflationary times or that generally perform well during a recession. And I keep seeing references to either real estate or utility stocks like oil and gas. But I don't have the money for an investment property right now, and oil and gas just seems so boring. Also, I feel really strongly about making investments that will help our planet and or help support women. So I guess my question is maybe more about where to invest right now, where my dollars can actually have a positive impact on the world at large. I love this question from Rachel because I know that a lot of our community feels this way. 
So it's a great question, but I think it's also really two questions, right? The second part of the question is, how do I invest in a way that I can make an impact on things that I believe in, that I'm passionate about, that are going to help my community and help the world? And that's a different question maybe than the first part of the question, which is how do I invest more specifically because of inflation? Do I invest in real estate or oil and gas? And so I'm going to answer the first part first, and then I want to talk about the second part. So the first part is, Yes, we hear commercials, we get pushed stuff online, especially if you're Googling it, you know, you're going to see all of the online ads, all the people that are paying to get the best positioning for someone who's typing in, how do I combat inflation? It's going to be gold, real estate, you know, utilities, like what you said, like what Rachel has referenced here. But the reality of it is, is that those should be part of your portfolio, regardless of the environment that we're in, right? You need to have a well-diversified portfolio that includes things like potentially precious metals and oil and gas and real estate. That doesn't mean that you go out and buy a gas station or you go out and you buy gold bullion or you go out and, you know, you're buying an investment property. No, you're investing in these things through potentially a fund, either a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund as part of a whole portfolio. And while those, again, those asset classes are are oftentimes really well marketed during times of inflation, in reality, Staying invested in the equity markets has long-term been a better inflation hedge than trying to put your money all in one basket in one place and say, well, now I'm going to move it to real estate, or now I'm going to move it to gold, or now I'm going to move it to oil and gas. No, you need to have those things at all periods of time, maybe different percentages based on where you are in your life, but it should be part of a well-diversified portfolio period. So I don't think you should be trying to time the market and get into one or two or three different specific asset classes that you think are going to be the better hedge, but rather just keep them all the time. Have all of the asset classes as part of your portfolio. But then to the next part of Rachel's question, which is how do I have a positive impact through my investing? There are so many ways. There are a lot of funds out there now that will be, we think about ESG funds. So that is environmental and social and governance. And how these funds invest is in ways that are going to do exactly what Rachel is referencing here. Funds that are going to either have a positive environmental impact or are going to have governance rules where they limit CEO pay, or they are going to have really, really specific areas that they're going to focus on that are what is deemed to have a positive influence on the world at large, which is exactly what Rachel's looking for here. And you can even get really specific with it. You know, if if she wants to focus on environmental funds, there are exchange-traded funds out there that are going to be as detailed as she wants. I think that doing a little bit of research or working with your financial planner, I mean, we have offerings at Edelman Financial Engines that really are specifically ESG-type portfolios where we're going to look at, you know, again, how that aligns with the client's goals. Is that what they're looking to do? Is that their focus? And we're going to give them options in that space. But doing it on your own, it's just really a matter of knowing what's out there. And there are so many ways to do this. That's fantastic. And yeah, I think a lot of people want to do some of their own research. They just want to be led in the right direction because there's so many different voices out there. Before we take our last question, Isabel, I just want to remind everyone that Her Money is also supported by BCU. And 
BCU measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic, to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. You can see if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at bcu.org. You ready for one last question, Isabel? I'm ready. All right, this is from Leah. And Leah says, I've never worked with a financial planner before, but a friend of mine does. And she was talking to me about her recession plan for her investments, but I have to say, I didn't understand it. I know the best thing to do if you're investing for the long haul is just stay invested. But with all this talk of a recession plan, I began to worry that I was missing something major. Is there some sort of universal action that you need to take when you're coming into a recession? I like to be a hands-off investor, but I'm worried that perhaps there is such a thing as being too hands-off. What do you think? What should I be doing? And that's the end of Leah's question. But the question I feel that she isn't asking is, does she need a financial advisor? Well, I think it's possible because she is very clearly saying, I I know these things, but I don't know what I don't know. And now I'm worried about it. And, you know, that's, I think, what for a lot of people is fundamentally what drives them to meet with an advisor is that they recognize that they have control over certain things. They understand a lot of what's going on. They're maybe doing the right things. But then when adversity comes or when change is going on in the world, when change is going on in the markets, we start to worry that we don't know anymore if we're doing the right things. It's kind of, you know, it's just it's just natural. It doesn't have to be about the market. It's just it, with change in general. So I think it depends, but the answer is probably yes, because what I'm concerned that Leah is going to do is try to do her own quote-unquote recession plan, which may not be the right thing for her. And I wonder what this recession plan really means, because to me, recession planning is just financial planning. I mean, we're always right around the corner from a recession or around the corner from a bear market. I mean, recessions happen every so often. So it should be part of your overall financial plan to be planning for inflation. It should be built in. You shouldn't be surprised that there's some level of inflation, especially given that we've been in a really low inflationary environment for so long. Just to get back to average, don't we need to be in a higher inflationary environment for a while so we can get back to those averages? I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm just saying that's kind of mathematically how it's probably going to work. So my question here for Leah's friend is, what is the recession planning? To me, one of the things that people can be thinking about as it relates to, you know, preparing is the cash reserve, is paying off debts. You know, if you if you have debts that you're concerned are going to be at higher interest rates as rates go up, pay them off now. You know, while you have the income and while you have are in a position where you can afford to do so, if you can, pay off the debts, build the cash reserve up, and get yourself prepared. Maybe that's, quote, recession planning. But again, I think, you know, the question here is, you're right, more, what am I missing? What am I not doing that I should be doing? And that's all we talk about in financial planning, is somebody may come to me and say, I'm planning for retirement. But then as the discussion unfolds, well, it turns out they're also thinking about buying another house, or they're thinking about their student loans that they have, or they're thinking about, you know, getting married or having children or whatever it is. So it's not always just the one thing that we're focused on in in 
financial planning, it really is much broader. Do you have enough life insurance? Have you done estate planning? You know, there's a lot that goes into that that I think people start to recognize over time. They hear their friends chattering about this or that, and they say, what am I missing here? And there might be a lot. Yeah, I agree. And I think what I'm seeing in your question, Leah, is there's often this misconception that financial planners are investment planners. And some financial planners may be, right? Some financial planners do just focus on your portfolio, but you've probably listened to me long enough to know that I have a preference for what is called a holistic financial planner or a holistic financial advisor. Somebody like Isabel, who's going to look at your whole life and who is going to say, these are the things that we want out of our life. Money is the tool that's going to help us achieve these things. Money's also the tool that's going to help us put protections in place so that nothing comes along and sabotages us from reaching our goals. It's a much broader view of your life, not just your investments. And that's where I actually think the real value comes in. And so if that is something that is interesting or attractive to you, then I would say, you know, it doesn't cost anything to meet with a financial advisor. Most financial advisors, at least all the ones that I know, are going are gonna to have a conversation with you for free. So I would do that, Leah. I would have that conversation and see for yourself what it is you think that you're missing, because that's the best way to do it, to look at the parts of your life that you haven't explored. Isabel, this was great. Please come back. It was so fun. Thank you for having me. I've loved taking these questions. Absolutely. And to all of you for listening, thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Again, thanks to Isabel Barrow for sharing her thoughts on how we can all feel a little more empowered with our finances, no matter what the markets are doing. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.